in three, two, one, roll the footage. Welcome back, everybody. Today we hang out with the New York Times best-selling author of How Soon Is Now and When Plants Dream. He hangs out with Joe Rogan, Stephen Colbert, and today with us as we explore how we can speak the truth, what consciousness is, why consciousness does not end after life, and how we can avoid extinction as a species. Welcome, everybody. Daniel Pinchbeck. Daniel, what are you currently creating? What am I currently creating? Uh, well, I'm, I'm doing some online courses. Uh, I've been teaching some writing classes online uh, and other seminars. Right now, I uh, just started a seminar called um, Cross, Crossing the Threshold, um, Consciousness uh, Beyond uh, Physical Death, uh, or Realms of Consciousness Beyond Physical Death. So we're looking at um, the question of, yeah, kind of like, is there an afterlife? You know, can, can we understand that scientifically? Um, you know, can we integrate science and mysticism or science and esoteric uh, thought? Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm finding it super exciting. And the genesis of it was a uh, long essay I wrote for a competition put on by the Bigelow Institute uh, on the topic of uh, what's the best evidence for the existence of uh, personality or consciousness after death. Let's define what is consciousness? Uh, that's a tough one. I mean, you could say awareness of awareness. Um, yeah, I would say that's the definition that I usually personally kind of like. You know, something is conscious when it's aware of its own awareness. Whenever you, you ask a cognitive psychologist, they will say, oh, yeah, how many semesters do I have to answer the question? But you go straight to the thing. It's awareness of awareness. It's the one thing that observes right now. Right? It's self-observing. It observes itself observing. <laughs> and how did your passion for, for consciousness start? Uh, well, I mean, I've always been interested in, you know, I've always been a writer and, and you know, I um, had an existential emergency in my 20s uh, where I realized that I was, you know, everybody I knew was part of the sort of scientific materialist or, or reductive physicalist worldview uh, that uh, said that consciousness could only be based in the brain and therefore that death would be the annihilation of any form of being or experiencing. And I realized that this was leading to a very nihilistic uh, world where everybody just fights for their own material satisfactions and sort of competes with everybody else. Uh, and I began getting really depressed. Uh, but then I asked myself, do I actually know that this was the reality? And I was like, well, no, it's just something that, you know, I've been taught by my teachers, what my parents believe, what my friends believe, because their parents and teachers believe it. So how would I actually inquire into it? So that led me to uh, psychedelics and shamanism. I ended up going to Africa, going through tribal initiation in Gabon with the Bwiti tribe, taking a substance called Iboga, spent time in the Amazon with ayahuasca, and uh, visited other indigenous communities in you know, Brazil and, and Mexico and so on. And uh, yeah, the more I explored, the more I discovered that there were these many dimensions of consciousness, and consciousness became something that uh, just began to fascinate me more and more. Uh, you know, what are the boundaries of it? How do we evolve it? You know, does it evolve? Does it change over time? Are there other dimensions of consciousness, other forms of being that exist in these other dimensions that we can communicate with? So it's become a, a lifetime uh, passion. Did you find boundaries? 
No, I don't think we know the boundaries yet. I mean, all, all, all you know, I mean, particularly, um, I mean, there are certain experiences that have become more and more popular, maybe partially because of my first book, Breaking Open the Head, and then, you know, DMT, the spirit molecule, the film, and other researchers. But so, for instance, dimethyltryptamine or DMT, which is a brain chemical, um, there's two types of it, NN and 5-MeO-DMT, you know, reliably, when you smoke it, produce completely out-of-body, immersive out-of-body experiences where you find yourself immersed in a hyperdimensional alternative reality. Um, and it's almost like more than you can take in. So I think we're just at the beginnings of, you know, learning how to explore these sort of hyperdimensions of consciousness and reality. So I don't, know, think, I don't think we can know what the boundaries or the limits are at this point. Would you say that the fabric of existence is consciousness? Yes. And one thing... I think that... quantum, quantum physics has actually really backed that up at this point. I mean, even like the greatest physicists of the 20th century ended up saying that, you know, the universe is actually created by the conscious participant, you know, and, and participation is the basic uh, reality of the universe. And why does consciousness create material and physical phenomena? Absolutely. Great, good question. Well, the thing is that uh, existing in, in itself in the sort of transcendent potentiality, uh, it can't have a knowledge or experience of itself. So it's only by creating a separate individuated, you know, kind of containers, you know, of consciousness, the consciousness can then experience itself, reflect upon itself, uh, learn, grow, explore its creative potential. So in fact, were actually necessary for there you know, to be any, um, you know, experience whatsoever, you know. One thing that you explore in your body of work is we are in an initiation phase. We are called now to, to step up as, as consciousness, as conscious beings, because this way leads to nowhere. Um, can you unpack specifically that book? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, that's, uh, uh, I mean, I've reflected on that in many of my books. I mean, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl uh, looked at it from the prophetic uh, traditions of different uh, cultures, including the Mesoamerican cultures, but also the Judeo-Christian apocalypse tradition and the, uh, you know, kind of Indian idea of the yuga cycles and so on. But um, yeah, essentially, um, uh, we're in an initiatory crisis uh, for humanity. We've kind of self-willed uh, a situation where, um, you know, we've pushed beyond the limits of the biosphere. We're exploiting, we're destroying, you know, we've caused a mass extinction crisis, accelerated uh, climate change. Uh, and, um, you know, it could be that we go extinct. I mean, certainly we know that 99% of species, you know, 0.89998 have gone extinct. But it could also be that this is an opportunity for us to reach a different level of consciousness and transform our behavior and actually turn ourselves from kind of like a parasite that the earth is about to wipe away to something like the earth's like active immune system, you know? So I think we're in a very challenging time and, you know, it's hard for us because we get locked into ideologies and beliefs, like even this idea of, you know, capitalism, you know, or, or you know, materialism, and then those kind of, you know, operate us, you know? So, so that's why I think it's so important to kind of step back and, and kind of understand, reflect upon the processes in which we're un, un, enmeshed and reflect upon these, these ideologies that we take as, as fact or as real. What would happen as a society if we connect more to this everlasting consciousness and we realize that everybody is consciousness, so that there is no separation between us, between anybody? 
Yeah, very great question. I mean, feel um, it could lead to a kind of, you know, spiritual, ecological, political revolution for humanity. I mean, we would become, you know, caring, compassionate, uh, cooperative. You know, we, we would recognize that, um, you know, kind of like this uh, separation and alienation that we're experiencing is a result of certain evolutionary historical processes and that but we have the creative capacity to, um, you know, transform ourselves and, um, you know, rethink, you know, how we're using our tools, our business tools, our technology tools, you know, and, and our economic tools, you know, these could all be, you know, rethought and in a sense re redesigned and reinvented for, for a more, you know, cooperative, you know, sort of symbiotic um, world design, you know, like a next stage of civilization. I'm curious how you navigate that because I find myself getting it here uh, cognitively and then in the same day, I just forget it. I don't embody it. I just forget it. I'm back into doing stuff and sure. I feel separate again. And uh, and uh, I've, I've, I, I, I lost the, the touch with abundance, with um, um, yeah, the collective intelligence of the universe that is here. So how? So I'm curious. How how do you do it? Do it, and how do you see people around it stay connected to this? Yeah, that's complicated. I mean, it's it's everybody has their own internal psychological and maybe karmic process that they have to go through. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I've definitely gone through times when, you know, there were shadow elements of my psychology that I thought I, you know dealt with in some sense, but they came, you know, charging forward. So yeah, we all have our individual process of, of development. And um, yeah, and, and, the, and the society is like a vast forgetting machine, right? Because, you know, you're, you're, when you go into, you know, business or entrepreneurship, you're immediately back in the mindset of, oh, I have to like, you know, get this profit and loss, uh, you know, you know, I got, I got to create financial profit. I have to satisfy my investors. You know, I have to, you know, compete against my competitors and, and make something that that's better than them and, you know, more efficient and so on. So, yeah, so it's very easy to lose it. I mean, I guess I'm kind of lucky or at least I've created my own luck in that uh, as, as a writer and thinker, I give myself a lot of time and energy to devote to these matters, you know, and I keep coming back to them and rereading and rethinking and re-reflecting. And so I think over, t over time, they slowly begin to kind of um, uh, get absorbed maybe more into my, into my like cellular makeup or something. But, you know, it's still a process and I still make mistakes. Have you seen entrepreneurs who can, who can navigate this, this paradox well? Like, yes, they are creating and they are disrupting, but they manage to do it from a place of connectedness, of awareness over, over most of their time. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, you know, when I when I step back, the problem for me is that um, it's clear that whatever we're doing up to this point is not working uh, in all fields, including, you know, philanthropy and charity. I mean, it's great that people raise money for, you know, um, right now, Afghan refugees or, you know, but we're, we're, we're looking we're, we're dealing with a world like in fragments. Uh, and um, for, for me, the. Um, we, we, need, we need to somehow get to the systemic underpinnings of the situation, you know, or we can't really affect very much, you know. So, for instance, you know, a big problem is that, you know, publicly traded companies 
um, you know, their their prime directive is to, is to maximize, you know, shareholder value, and which means creating financial profit. So they're kind of um, forced to operate like uh, kind of like robots in a way that just do that, you know, so so in a corporation, it's going to self select for, you know, character types who maybe are a little bit more psychopathic or sociopathic, who, um, you know, are not going to see protecting like local ecosystems, local communities as the priority, you know, so it's, so it's wired into the logic of our economic system to, you know, kind of extra, extract value, you know, exploit resources and so on. So, so in a way, if we're ever going to deal with this, you know, it, it's almost like we need a um, transformation, like a redesign of, of our economic systems and structures. Now, that could happen, you know, potentially through something like blockchain. Um, you know, we could we could redesign our instruments for exchanging value so that things that are now externalities are, are internalized. But the problem with doing that is that, um, you know, we'd, ha we'd have to create a, a more balanced value system where people couldn't accumulate as much wealth, you know, and, and based on the value system of capitalism, we see people like, you know, Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates as these kind of ultimate paragons of, of genius. And in a way, we almost give them like, a, you know, almost like a religious sanctification, um, you know, and, and, and actually, you know, we, I don't think that humanity can survive with such great disparities of wealth. And then when you look at how, you know, a lot of these people make this type of wealth, it has to do with, you know, we call that privatizing the commons, like figuring out some way to take what could be. I mean, you know, you know, we look at the Internet which was once to be a kind of paradise of free information and free communication. And now it's all about uh, creating these like prison walls and boundaries. You have to pay X amount for any piece of information or, or to watch something that interests you and so on. And, and, and uh, sadly, it, it's created, a, you know, it's re-hierarchized knowledge rather than liberating it. This week, El Salvador is embracing Bitcoin as a legal tender. Other countries are discussing it. How do you see the, the potential and the impact of blockchain technologies for society? Well, I don't think that Bitcoin is the answer. I, I mean, I think that um, the, the focus on Bitcoin to me is a little bit ludicrous. I mean, uh, you know, first of all, it's a gigantic you know, disaster in terms of energy use. I mean, you can look up you know, Bitcoin server farms on uh, Google and you look at these gigantic, you know, they're, they're using as much energy as a country to uh, do these mathematical equations to produce these 20 million bitcoins through, through these algorithms. And, um, you know, and, and this whole argument that people in the blockchain world make that, uh, oh, the dollar doesn't have any intrinsic value, national currencies don't have any intrinsic value, so bitcoin is just as good as any of that. To me, that's totally a fraudulent argument. I mean, you know, whatever you want to say about a national currency like the dollar, it is backed by schools, highways, you know, military, you know, like all this infrastructure, you know, every, you know, legal codes, I mean, everything that, that, that has been, you know, built and sanctioned by this, like, this culture, <laughs> you know, well, yes and no. But the thing is that Bitcoin is simply backed by the belief of everybody, the, 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 the accept, I mean, you know, you, you, you know, you could make Simon Bitcoin, I can make Daniel Bitcoin, we can, we can take Bitcoin, the whole thing is open source, and we can make our own and people have forked Bitcoin, you know, there, there's no reason that this exact Bitcoin should be taken as value, except that we put our trust and our belief in it, which is fascinating. But, um, I, I, you know, the, the, you know, I, I understand also that um, it's very unstable, you know, because what if that belief wobbles, you know, or dissipates, and suddenly you're holding something that's literally valueless, you know. So, so but what interests me is more that um, now we have the capacity to kind of program 
systems of value, systems of exchange, you know, could, could you program one that, you know, was generally accepted that, you know, didn't allow for all these externalities, you know, because at the moment, like a corporation doesn't have to pay to pollute or to extract it, but it would make everything far more expensive, unfortunately, we'd have to, we'd have to agree, you know, which we know that if we're going to survive the ecological catastrophe, you know, we would all have to kind of agree to live in a much more moderate way for a number of decades, at least, until new systems were put in place. Um, but that's not even a discussion you can have publicly at this point, you know, or very rarely. You are launching something exciting. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been doing a series of courses. Uh, I have a website, theliminalinstitute.com. And right now people can sign up for the course that we're currently doing, which is about um, consciousness after death. Uh, and um, looking at it from all these different ways, I mean, uh, you know, we're sort of part of the argument of the of the of the course is that the uh, you know reductive materialist or physicalist uh, worldview of science of the last centuries is actually kind of very obsolete and outmoded, and so we we have we can we can begin to move you know kind of securely into a different understanding of the nature of reality that in a way prioritizes consciousness or sees consciousness as the foundational you know, kind of, you know, structure of, of reality. And then we can see, you know, things like string theory, these like other dimensions that, that, that physicists have, have uncovered as perhaps telling us that there's many dimensions of consciousness or conscious experience. And this begins to allow us to construct kind of a new scientific paradigm that, that would allow for things like reincarnation, you know, out-of-body experience. And, and we actually have tremendous evidence uh, for all these areas, like Ian Stevenson from University of Virginia, who's been looking at, you know, young children who spontaneously recall um, their past lives and early childhood, and he would actually bring the children back to the way they said they were from and find the families and find birthmarks that represented where they, they died, whether it was like a shotgun wound or a wound to the neck or something, they would have birthmarks there. So yeah, quite, quite, quite a lot of really, you know, compelling research and from a number of different areas that really suggest that some type of um, afterlife and reincarnation, you know, are, are legitimate. I think, once again, that's a necessary um, aspect of this learning that would allow us to kind of begin to surrender, you know, and, and detach from this, like, you know, materialism, which has gripped, uh, you know, modern civilization, which is leading to our downfall. It's funny that you say that from experience, Consciousness and the infinite uh, nature of it is absolutely clear to me, to everybody. Like if, if, you, if you feel yourself in awareness, you see that this awareness was always here, is, is always here. Uh, it's here when we sleep. When, when my first kid came to the world and I, I looked him uh, in the eyes, my experience was... In this moment, we have been thousand times. This yeah. is an eternal moment. And it was very clear. It's also clear to you, you resonate with that. But from outside experience, so how can you, you say you come from a scientific um, exploration. What outside of experience can you explore? Which material do you investigate? Uh, well, I'm very intrigued by kind of, uh, I mean, there's, there's increasing numbers of scientists in different fields who are kind of working their way back to a position which is very similar to Eastern, 
you know, mysticism and its understanding of uh, the subtle bodies and, um, you know, kind of the universal, you know, consciousness and so on. I mean, one of my favorites is Amitka Swami, who has a book called Physics of the Soul, where he looks at how all the properties of quantum uh, mechanics, like non-locality, spooky action at a distance and so on, could help us understand how, you know, as we live, we create these kind of, you know, aggregates of like thinking and feeling, you know, which are electrical patterns in the brain of electrons and so on. And that, you know, we know that electrons remain connected, um, you know, even if they spread out as probability waves almost to infinity, they still are, are connected on a transcendent domain. So these aggregates of thinking and feeling that we experience when we live, you know, could easily maintain this connection and that would be the basis for, you know, kind of science, you know, future science of reincarnation, let's say, you know, stuff like that. And, and so it's the first time I, I say in public that this experience uh, with the birth of my, of my son, that I had this experience of having experienced it like a thousand times. And, 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 I, and you go immediately, yeah, sure. Can you unpack that a little bit for listeners who go, no, I'm not sure. How can he be? Yeah, how can he say yes? Well, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, it's an archetypal human experience, you know, to, to you know, realize that you've created, you know, another container of consciousness and another, you know, being that, you know, in a way has a soul potentially. I mean, I think one of the things that's amazing about having a child actually is how quickly you realize that um, they're not blank slates, like there is an essence there and the personality then kind of arises out of that essence. But it's not your personality or your wife's personality or even a combination thereof you know it's its own individual and unique being and i think that's that's you know one of the indicators that something like reincarnation must be true you know because um if it, if, it, if it was just coming into the world as a blank slate there wouldn't be that sense of, of a unique essence uh, this is like um one of the people we're looking at in the course uh, frederick myers uh, from the late 19th century wrote a book called the human personality and the survival of bodily death and he looked at a lot of extraordinary uh, aspects of human psychology, like, um, you know, kind of um, idiot savants who can create, you know, do these vast numerical operations instantaneously, or geniuses, you know, where you have somebody like Mozart, who at the age of like four, you know, can play a symphony, or as soon as he hears one, you know, replay it or something. That these suggest that um, there are, there are, you know, we have the access to the to these higher levels of, of potentiality. Uh, for most people, the mind acts as like a reducing valve, but maybe because some people have gone through different, you know, kind of reincarnational cycles, you know, they, they have more access to, 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 to these um, hidden dimensions of, of consciousness and possibility. Fascinating. If people want to dig deeper, where can they find you and your course? Yeah, it's, uh, well, the course is theliminalinstitute.com and, um, you know, I'm, I'm on all the normal platforms. They can always reach out to me on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. Uh, I have a website, with, you know, which includes some of my past work, uh, pinchbeck.io. And yeah, that's about it. And you have a newsletter on Substack, right? Uh, exactly, actually. That, that's, that's a good point. Yes, uh, Substack. If they, look, if they look up my name and, and Substack, they'll find my newsletter and they can subscribe. That's a great way to stay in touch. Thank you so much, Daniel, for being on the show, sharing your wisdom with us. Thanks for having me, Simon. Nice chat. See you soon. Yeah. Ciao, ciao.